Welcome to the Learning Can't Wait podcast, a Full Mind production. At Full Mind, our vision is to ensure every child has access to an exceptional education. Each episode, we will be joined by pathfinders within and around the education space who are bringing about transformational change on behalf of deserving students. I am your host, Haley Spearbauer. Welcome back, everybody. I am so excited to introduce you to today's guest, Nina Reese, the President and Chief Executive Officer of the National Alliance for Public Charter Schools. Nina, welcome to the Learning Can't Wait podcast. Thank you so much, Haley, for having me. It is such an honor to have you on the podcast. I am someone who myself is a charter teacher or a former charter teacher, and I'm excited to talk about the charter movement in today's episode entitled Charting the Charter Movement. But before we dive all the way into charters, uh, for those folks that are listening today, Nina, who are not totally aware of your illustrious uh, educational background, I'd love for you to share with them a little bit about how you came to be the personal and professional version of yourself. Well, again, thank you so much for having me, Haley. Just uh, in terms of my background, I was born and raised in Iran, left Iran in 1983 after the revolution. And my father left literally everything behind to give my brother and I uh, the chance at a great education. And he had been educated in the U.S. as a Fulbright uh, scholar. Uh, so we moved uh, to Blacksburg, Virginia, which is the home of Virginia Tech in Southwest Virginia. And I went to high school in this little small rural community that only had one public school, public high school. Um, after that, I moved to D.C. I only wanted to you know, work on Capitol Hill. I was really interested in public policy. In hindsight, it could have also been because in Iran, this the system of government uh, under which I grew up and what they ended up adopting uh, was nothing like what we have here uh, in this country. You can, your voice does matter. I know it's not always working as perfectly as it needs to, but there is a process in place in order to make sure people are going to the ballot box to elect the people that they want. And the more engagement you have, you know, at the local level, at the state level, at the federal level, the better the results will be. But you know, one of the things that I have grown to appreciate or kind of understand also is the importance of constantly reminding people about this great privilege that they have as Americans, which a lot of other countries, unfortunately, um, don't have. So uh, I moved to D.C. I worked on Capitol Hill for a couple of years, uh, and then somehow I ended up working uh, at a public interest law firm that litigated on behalf of low-income families who wanted access to better schools. And uh, through hearing the stories and the experiences of these families, I really felt a sense of connection to them, partly because of what I went through and what I saw my family give up in order to give my brother and I a good education. I started writing about them and I ended up working at the Heritage Foundation, which at the time, this was the late 90s, was very interested in finding alignment between the left and the right around education issues at the federal level. So back then, we didn't have so many education groups out there. We had a few, like the Education Trust, and back then, the National Council of La Raza, that we're interested and aligned with us uh, on the right about the importance of giving, um, you know, uh, holding states accountable for raising student achievement and making sure parents had options. 
And right around then, Governor Bush from Texas was running for president and he had a very aggressive education agenda. I was fortunate enough to be an advisor on his campaign and later work in the administration uh, on the passage of back then the No Child Left Behind Act. And uh, after that, I worked at the U.S. Department of Education for, for a few years uh, where I got to really understand the full menu of things that the federal government is involved in. And I got to really better understand not just the constituencies, but the different aspects of education, not just from a parental empowerment standpoint, but also from a, you know, curriculum and, you know, how do you create systems and create incentive processes in order to make sure you're ultimately serving the needs of families. Uh, after that, I worked uh, in the private sector for a for-profit education company that had investments in early childhood education. They ran childcare centers and before and after school programs and tutoring programs. And I have now been at the National Alliance for a little over 10 years. Uh, and I'd like to say that, you know, this job really combines everything that I have learned through work with my own passion around expanding options. And I'm really grateful every day to wake up to uh, serve a sector that is about improving public education uh, and making sure that students ultimately are at the center of that equation. You know, you said that this experience that you have right now feels like a throughput almost from all the experience that combines all the different passions and, and mission-driven elements as also your uh, the, the places you've worked in and served before. And as I listened to you, I really could hear that direct line of being committed to, and, you know, educational equity and high-quality options available for families everywhere I'm wondering, as you reflect on your own career, was there anything along the way that felt like a complete compelling pull for you? You couldn't stay away from due to what has driven you and what has been your kind of uh, North Star in education? Well, to some extent, as I said, the stories of these families that the law firm I worked at, that to me, the, interacting with these families, understanding their needs definitely pulled me into the cause more than I thought it would. And this, this firm represented low-income families, and they had a lot of other cases that were quite as equally interesting and, and attractive from a legal standpoint, but also from a uh, PR standpoint. But this one connected with me for a very simple reason in that we spend so much time in education talking about data, talking about disaggregation of data so we can explain to families the quality of their schools and whatnot. But what was an aha moment for me is for most of the families that we were talking to, they knew that their schools were not doing well. So you didn't need to have more information. What they needed were options. They needed options either uh, in terms of public school choice to go to another school that was not zoned in the community where they lived, you know, the, the opportunity to move potentially across a district line, which sometimes is can be expensive uh, to move into a good neighborhood in order to send your child to public schools and all the privileges that most Americans take for granted does not exist for those who don't have the means. So I just felt if you could just fix one thing in this country, which is to give people more options outside of the school that they're zoned to send their kids to, you'd be able to solve a lot of the other problems. Again, there's there's still other things you need to do to fix the public school system, but the right to attend or send your child to a school that's fitting the needs of that child 
is something that needs to really be ingrained in uh, everything that we do. And ultimately, parents know their kids better than anyone else and can make these decisions much better than any bureaucrat or any well-meaning individual who's working in a public school or at the state level or federal level. It's interesting that you point out that parents, we disaggregate data as like education folk. It's con- We're constantly paying attention to data and subsections of populations and what the learning means for the students. But you're right. Parents know. They, they know their students best and they're living the experiences that, that data scientists and economists are constantly studying. So I'm grateful you named that point and also you shared so, so openly and vulnerably, your own journey in education, how that led to where you are today. I think the more and more folks I meet in and around education that have been in different parts of the sector, I find that we all are in this space because we care deeply about changing the world for better and making education more attainable for more students. So that leads me to asking you a little bit about being in the charter sector, what do you what do you make of the dialogue around public schools and public charter schools? Like at like the thirty thousand foot level, how does it how does it all look to you? Well, first of all, charter schools are public schools. They've been they've been around now for a little over thirty years. The first charter law passed in nineteen ninety one in the great state of Minnesota with bipartisan support back then. President Clinton or Governor Clinton at the time was running for president. And he uh, saw the potential that chartering had in reforming public education. He talked about it on the campaign trail so much so that his advisors uh, were complaining about why he's talking about something that only existed in one state. And back then, maybe just one or two schools were around. So it had roots in bipartisanship and a marriage, so to speak, between the left and the right around the importance of holding schools accountable for raising student achievement, combined with the importance of parents having some options and having not, not being forced to attend these schools, so to speak. So in terms of the dialogue at the national level, um, I'll just say that Things have changed quite a bit since the beginning of the charter school movement, but one thing has stayed constant, which is the fact that a lot of people still don't know what a charter school is. Those who know what it is and what it can do are highly supportive. There is a small minority that will never buy into the concept because they don't like uh, you know, the, 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 the a system of schools that's operating outside the jurisdiction of a school district. Uh, and they have a fundamental problem with the concept of giving or trusting parents with options. But there's still a vast majority of people in that middle who simply don't know what a charter school is. So when you have a good portion of the population that's not familiar with with the, with a concept you do open the door for those who don't like the idea to gain fra- to gain traction by defining it uh, in a way that may seem unappealing one of the things we've done quite well in those places where we've had some resources to apply is to simply explain what charter schools are in terms that a regular person can understand. The other thing, of course, is when you start to talk about this issue, that the fact is there are only about, you know, 77, 100 public charter schools around the country serving three and a half million students. So they're not everywhere. Uh, you know, in brand marketing, when you're ad- advertising something, you usually are targeting an audience that could eventually go online and, and, and decide, oh, I want to buy this. I want to enroll my child in this program. With charter schools, you have to first have a law. You have to have you know, individuals who are opening those schools in your community in order for people to be able to touch and feel it. So 
um, that's the other thing that gets in the way of really gaining more traction. Uh, the fact that, again, it's not everywhere. But in those communities where charter schools exist, like New Orleans, which is an all-charter district, like Washington, D.C., where close to 50% of the students are attending charter schools, and other communities where the numbers are hitting the 15%, 20% range uh, in terms of penetration in the community, those are the places where uh, there is more awareness of what they do because you have examples, stories of individuals who can explain what a charter is in a way that uh, ultimately resonates the best. So I, I can talk about it all day in policy terms and in terms of, you know, you know, the achievement, academics and whatnot, but nothing resonates more than the story of a family that was able to put their kid in a better school because of a high quality charter school. So that's one aspect of the communication challenge, so to speak, that you raised. The other piece of it, quite frankly, has to do with the politics of chartering. And when you, whenever you're trying to um, change something, you're going to get resistance, even if the change ultimately benefits the people you're trying to serve. And that is, quite frankly, some of the uh, headwind that chartering has hit in those places where you have the establishment responding to families leaving the system, whether you know, it's, it comes in the form of union opposition. It also, in some instances, may come in the form of the district officials opposition. What I have found to be true, though, is the more you engage the community, the more you bring people to the table to talk about the benefits of something, and the more you, you know, rely on the families who are benefiting from charter schools to talk, talk about this issue, the more authentic the story becomes, and the more you will see forward momentum in expanding charter schools and creating buy-in from those on the ground. There, ha Yeah, no, there's, there's so much about here that I like, we could spend like probably whole episodes talking about, as you said, you, you could talk about the, the politics of it all day, but there's so many nuanced stories of individuals and communities that are impacted by the introduction of charter schools into the space. Uh, my experience in teaching and leading in charter schools has been in New York City, which has had its kind of heyday during the time that I was in a charter school, which was around 2008 to 2018. There was a major boom in charter schools, proliferation of both small organizations and large, very well-known organizations in the charter movement. And it's it's interesting because I would imagine, as you have named, there are regions that are saturated and regions that are less saturated. So the public understanding of public charter schools in spaces with less saturation is very different than how I probably saw it. That variance, does that variance in like density of charter schools in a region result in different actions from the National Alliance or is the is the effort still the same in supporting communities that have charter schools and is the implementation similar? Well, it depends. Uh, we Our focus really is in those places that don't have a charter school law uh, or have a very weak law where you don't see a lot of charter schools because those are the places where you don't have an infrastructure or community that's taking care of the sector. Uh, in those places where you already have an established sector, where you have a state association or other harbor master on the ground, we rely on them to tell us what they need and how we can help them. But again, one of the things that we have found 
uh, to be true over time is the importance of simply repeating the fact that charter schools are public, that they don't charge a, charge a tuition, there is no entrance uh, exam, and they cannot discriminate against families, and uh, that they really are the best of what public education was always meant to be, schools that are created by the community for the community and in service to the students in them. In addition to your website, where would you suggest educators and families and community members that are unfamiliar with charters go to learn about the movement? Well, I definitely think our website, publiccharters.org, is the best place to find this information. There are other organizations, again, depending on the state that you're in, that also advocate on behalf of charter schools. And we have links to those organizations if you go to our website and hit the partner page. With that said, if you're looking for a charter school, we have a website, but the other resource that I'd like to highlight is Great Schools and Niche. These are places that have information about options. And if you're if you're in a community trying to find a school that fits your needs, but you can Google uh, and search for the schools in your neighborhood. And that's, that's also where you can identify potential charter schools to send your kids into. And those websites also have information about academics and the people who are sending their kids to those schools believe or think about that school, their rating systems in place. You know, Nina, as, as part of like the next portion, I want to ask about how the pandemic has has affected the charter school movement and the charter school community. And I have a whole bunch of like singular lines of questions like, but the first one is overall, what changes has the pandemic brought to charter schools from your vantage point? Well, the first thing that the pandemic did was to really elevate um education in the eyes of families who were getting exposed to what their kids were learning in their on their kitchen tables and in their own homes. So beyond charter schools, more parents started to notice what was being taught in, in their school, how well teachers were able to use the online medium to communicate with their kids. And in many communities, it led to parents making choices. Uh, we noticed, uh, and the National Center for Education Statistics has confirmed a number that we put out last year, uh, about 1.3 million families left the traditional system for something else. Uh, 240,000 of them enrolled in charter schools. And again, keep in mind, we don't have charter schools everywhere. So that number would have been higher if we had, or if parents had the ability to select the charter school in their community. So parents definitely wanted something different and charter schools were one of the options that they gravitated towards. People thought, oh, that's just an uptick, but we did it for the 21-22 school year. And we found that the numbers held steady, which means they, there may have still been shifts between a charter and another charter, but the increase in enrollment in charter schools between the 2020-21 school year and the 21-22 school year held steady. So the you know, a quarter million families are now in charter schools because it's an option that they want. And keep in mind also, people don't make changes in their schools that often. You you have to really be unhappy or be seeking something different for some reason in order to move your child uh, and make the decision to pull them out of their existing school and put them into a new school. So uh, we take this very seriously and we're happy that so many families opted for charter schools. So, okay, that covers enrollment perfectly. That was the first one. <laughs> that was the first sub-bullet. The second one is about teacher retention. How has the pandemic changed teacher retention within the charter schools across the U.S.? Well, look, one of the things that charter schools have is the ability to uh, attract the best and give them the freedom and autonomy to 
do what they do best, which is teach. And in those communities where you have a reduction uh, in the size of the school, or if you have changes in demographics and in terms of you know, mobility rates, you're probably going to see some shifts in where teachers went. Certainly in the labor market, there are more jobs out there. There is this narrative that there is a lot of fatigue in the system, but there are also studies that demonstrate that there, these things may be more pronounced in certain communities over others. With the charter uh, leaders we speak to, the, the key thing they raised in the few months post-pandemic, sort of in the 20, because there's also so much money that the federal government disseminated, you know, so in order to make sure that people were getting paid, that they had the resources to clean their schools, that they had the resources to offer tutoring and other services. So in talking to our leaders, uh, it became obvious that in many uh, instances, they wanted to hire more people and that there may not be enough individuals out there who are attracted to uh, teaching or to tutoring or to being a bus driver because there's so many other jobs also available out there. But these are anecdotal stories. I don't have data that specifically says, you know, we had a reduction uh, at the national level in the number of teachers in our schools. If anything, we're noticing more people interested in charter schools, which then opens the door for more individuals going in. And keep in mind, in most of the states that have high quality laws, there are alternative routes to teacher certification to go into a school. So if you're interested in educating a child, your odds of being able to hit the ground running at a charter school in some places are higher because you don't have to go through uh, all the other you know, burdensome rules and regulations that uh, are required for a teacher to teach in a district school. Helpful. I'm curious, you know, I wonder, we're seeing like a major shift in the first two points that we just talked about. Student enrollment nationally is on a decline for the second year in a row. And there are regionalized teacher shortages. And I'm wondering how over time, I don't think you have an answer right now. You said at the national level related to teacher retention. I'm curious in the next five to 10 years, what we're going to see as trends and how those trend lines will either parallel or intersect in the public and public charter, like it, it, it remains to be seen. It remains. Yes. I talk about I talk about teacher shortage almost on every single episode right now. Everybody has to talk about. Everybody has an opinion or a stake in the teacher shortage and how it's impacting their purview within the, the space of education. So I think a lot remains to be seen over the next five to ten years. Absolutely, and it's a great question. Uh, not just because of the pandemic and birth rates, but also because of the changing face of education. Uh, and the other thing that the pandemic introduced was technology. More schools are now offering Chromebooks and uh, access. There are, there are more um, hotspots and where's uh, places where you can actually uh, get internet access for the first time. Republicans at the federal level also started embracing efforts to really address this other aspect of infrastructure, which is about connectivity. So uh, I do think technology is disrupting this space as well. And, uh, you know, the need to have one highly qualified teacher in the classroom may not be quite as pronounced as having individuals in the classroom to monitor what students are doing with a highly quali qualified teacher beaming in to to teach a class. But for our sector, because so many of our students are from disadvantaged backgrounds with working families, they still need to go to a physical school and the online medium in and of itself is not 
a great medium, especially for small children. So we're always going to need individuals who care about children in the classroom, people who are interested in innovation and really meeting the unique needs of children. So regardless of what technology does to disrupt, we still need to have skilled individuals who really care for kids. And I think of all the jobs out there, this is potentially one of the most rewarding ones. There might be some fatigue and you know, post-pandemic, I think a lot of people are suffering from a whole host of trauma and other things that came about for being, you know, in the house and not all the uncertainties that it brought. But it also, when you go out now, you see so many people who are eager to get congregate, eager to move on past the pandemic. So I think there is something about our space that is very attractive to those who want to innovate and who want to test different things and who are committed to the social justice mission of our schools, which is about closing the achievement gap. And so we have great opportunities to really attract the best and the brightest. And I always encourage our leaders to lean into that a lot more and not accept some of the facts that are usually given to us around, you know, labor shortages and whatnot. Yeah. You know, I think the dialogue around labor shortages and teacher shortages brought a huge debate, huge debate between economists and school leaders and individual teachers. And if for no other reason than that debate, I'm glad it happened because that debate, as with you started out our conversation today by naming that the pandemic brought to light how important education is. And I think that that debate brought about an important discourse around the profession of teaching, the value of education and, or excuse me, the value of teachers in the classroom and how right now, I, I, I believe in the collective trauma of everyone, but especially folks that have been in school buildings over the past three years, has really taken a toll. Um, and, and, you know, that brings me to the, the last kind of pandemic-related impact question, which is about students. We know, we know students were greatly impacted by the pandemic, both academically and socially, emotionally. How does the charter school, what kind of trends are the charter schools um, in the U.S. seeing as related to student achievement um, now that we have some concrete data from NAEP and a couple other sources at our fingertips? That's a great question. So the NAEP data set that came out this past fall captured um, the achievement levels of students and also the, the there's a component of it that's focused on districts. And that's always been a very helpful gauge for us to see how students are doing, especially in those uh, cities that have a lot of charter schools. Unfortunately, the story uh, across the board is a very inconsistent and bad story for all kids. The students who lived through this pandemic in the year of the pandemic, they're all lagging behind and there's uh, there's a lot of talk about how those schools that stayed open did better. But when you talk to the folks at NAGB who administered the NAEP, they don't necessarily see a lot of uh, hard data and correlation between those schools that stayed open and academic achievement. If, if there was such a thing, they would have talked more about some of the evidence coming out of you know, some of the Catholic schools, for instance. So uh, I think it's a snapshot. I do also believe firmly that students are resilient. And if there is uh, ever a country that knows how to home in on a problem and try to solve it, it is the United States. So I wouldn't necessarily, I mean, it is a lost year. It is going to have some consequences. And there certainly there are a lot of consequences from a social emotional standpoint that have already been discussed around rising rates of depression and uh, some of the other problems that come with 
being cooped up in a house, potentially in a household that's not very stable. But at the end of the day, there is a lot of money in the system to fix and address these issues. And because we are so hyper-focused on solving problems, I am confident that with the help of all the different tutoring entities out there, as well as individuals and communities that are trying to help other communities that will be able to turn this corner and you know pick up where we had left off. But I also, I mean, the problem I raised earlier around technology, it's not a problem, but I do think technology and the way it's disrupting our schools is something that all of our school system leaders need to grapple with and deal with. It's not just about making a computer or laptop Chromebook available to kids. I hope that going forward, that they will continue to train their teachers on how to use the online medium in a creative way. Uh, certainly, we don't need to close the schools anymore during snow days. And to really kind of see how this this new tool that you have available to you can help with instruction, with raising student achievement and making sure education available to kids anytime, anywhere and at any time uh, during the day. Yeah, it's probably a whole... I actually... I'm appearing, I'm talking about chat GPT on a future podcast, which relates to this whole theme of education is, or excuse me, technology is ever evolving. That is a fact of our society and where we are in 2023. Uh, how do schools embrace it in a way that furthers learning, right? You're naming having the infrastructure, having the tools, making sure it's integrated appropriately in a way that drives student achievement. And there are other elements that we just cannot avoid. There are going to be continual evolution of tools. And so I appreciate your optimistic spirit for the future and the realistic notion that schools have to embrace supporting teachers and understanding the technology and utilizing and implementing it effectively, which is like a perfect segue to our final question today, which is for teachers starting their career. Nina, what advice would you give a teacher starting their career today? Well, first, I hope more. Individuals graduating from school, from college, are drawn to teaching. Um, there, again, there are so many jobs out there. And when, when I look at survey data around Gen Z and whatnot, it's, you know, it gives you a lot of information about the sorts of jobs that they want. And so gone are the days when you enter a profession and decide you want to graduate and stay in it forever. So I am a little concerned because ultimately in, in many of our schools, it's not just about the education is also about the relationships that adults are building with children. And the, the more these relationships are built over time, the stronger they become. And it's important for people to stay in the system and to, uh, and to be committed to, to the, to the business of teaching. The other thing I'll say is most teachers will also tell you that they become better over time. Uh, so there's really nothing you can do. You can teach the, 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 the job and whatnot, but ultimately uh, it's by being in the classroom and doing the work that you become better. So my hope is that more individuals will pay attention to coming into teaching. It is a highly rewarding job, uh, one that you know I hope will continue to pay uh, a fair wage and a, and, a, and a strong set of benefits to teachers. Uh, but my advice is to, to consider teaching at charter schools, public schools, private schools, but to, to, to commit to teaching and to consider teaching as a profession and when they graduate from college. That's strong advice to end on. <laughs> uh, I know I have a deep appreciation given my own background and now the fact that I have kids in school today, my own children. So I, I feel that deeply. Nina, thank you so much for joining today, uh, the podcast and sharing 
the incredible work that the National Alliance for Public Charter Schools are doing in your own deep commitment to education. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to the Learning Can't Wait podcast. If you like what you heard, please rate, review, and share this episode. Be the first to know when we have a new episode by subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to be a guest on the show or have a suggestion for an episode, email us at podcast at fullmindlearning.com.